Well, tonight, as many of you know, I am filling in for Pastor John, who's on vacation. And for those in Toronto, um, you know, in our Wednesday nights, we have been doing a refreshers, a refresher on the basics of the Christian life. And we are looking at the basic Christian discipline of prayer. And tonight I'm going to preach a message of an example of prayerful action or prayer in action. And we're going to use an Old Testament example, example of Nehemiah. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, the events of the book of Nehemiah, it's, if you're beginning to look for it in your Bibles, it's just before the Psalms. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, Esther, Psalms. Um, Nehemiah takes place uh, during, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel had descended so far into sin that God sent judgment upon them and brought them into captivity in Persia. He had handed over Judah to Babylonian rule because of the sin, because of the, the sinfulness of his people. And the Persians had conquered Babylon in 539 BC. So Israel had been in exile. Now, in God's grace, under the Persian king, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, the faithful God, had begun to let the Israelites come back to rebuild their nation. That's the kind of God that he is, a kind and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A God who does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Now, in the book of Ezra, which precedes Nehemiah, two returns to Israel are detailed. First, under Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra. And the book of Nehemiah that we're looking at tonight picks up where Ezra left off with the account now of Nehemiah, the Jewish slave cupbearer to the king of Persia. And our focus this evening is going to be on the first eight verses of chapter two, but we're going to read chapter one as a backdrop to it. Here now, God's holy, ineffable word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have asked very corruptly, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. 
the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They ate your servants and your people. They are, sorry, your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is not nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, this is the word of the Lord, and it endures for all time. Let us come before him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who hears and answers prayer. You are the God who is all-powerful and mighty. Lord, we pray that even tonight as we read of and listen and think about Nehemiah's prayerful action, would you also likewise motivate us, Lord, to come before you, to pour out our hearts before you, to plan and to pray, and to be used, Lord, as instruments in your hands for the advancement of your glory and your kingdom. Bless us now, encourage us and challenge us, and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Our focus this evening is, again, Nehemiah chapter 2, the encounter Nehemiah has as he comes before his king. Now, one of the first jobs that I had coming out of university was in sales. I worked in a car leasing company. And for the first 
three weeks that I worked there at the company, I was the low man on the totem pole and I got the, the cold sales leads. These were people who had called several months earlier getting a quote on a vehicle and probably had already bought one. And my job was to take these cold sales leads to try and call them up and ask them if they still wanted to buy a car. And this was my first experience doing cold calling. And I've got to tell you, it was not a pleasant experience. I didn't like calling them, but I did it because I knew that it was my job. And if I recall correctly, I don't think out of the hundreds of calls that I must have made, I don't think I got a single job. And I remember uh, at this time telling my friend how much I really didn't like making these hard sales calls. And he just laughed at me being the sympathetic friend that he was. But he then told me what he had to do when, they, when he joined this company, because I joined the company a little bit after it had got established. The part owners of the company were actually a computer leasing company, old Patriot Computers. Some of you in Toronto might remember them. And the way that they started the car leasing company was to have salesmen like me call up purchasers of computers and ask them if they wanted a car to go with their computer. Now, if you can imagine, it's a crazy ask. It was a very, they would, the, the script was that you called and you asked them how their computer was, was working out for them. And then you were to say something like this, I'm very glad that you like your computer, but I was wondering if I could interest you in a new car or truck. Now, as you can imagine, that was an unbelievably big ask. It was an unbelievably hard thing to call people up about their computer purchase and then get them to upgrade, not their RAM or their hard drive, but upgrade and buy a totally different product, totally unrelated, a car. It's an incredibly difficult ask. And while I was complaining about cold sales leads, that was not even, it was barely a lead. But we are often placed in situations in our lives where we are helpless and we have to make very difficult asks. And that's the very situation that Nehemiah faced at the beginning of this book. As we said, Israel was in Persian captivity. And we have seen how Hanani, his brother, managed to bring news. The news was bad. Jerusalem was in ruins and its walls and gate were down. Now, in those days, that was basically your security. If you didn't have walls, then you, there was no way that you could protect yourself against marauders and thieves. There was no safety to be found. And so Israel is in ruins, the, the land of his fathers. The promised land, the land flowing in milk and honey, the one that indeed um, God had, had promised Israel and now had taken away because of their sins. What we're going to see tonight as we look at chapter 2, this beginning eight verses of chapter 2, we see how a faithful and prayerful servant of the Lord responds when facing a very difficult situation. Nehemiah's response here is foundational as it gives an example to us about how to live our lives prayerfully in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And it's something 
that bears repeating for us. My hope this evening, as we look at this passage together, is that the Lord would use this passage to help encourage us to be prayerful like this faithful prayer warrior of the Old Testament, Nehemiah. We're going to look at this section in chapter 2 under two simple headings tonight. First, we're going to look at Nehemiah's prayer and planning, verses 1 to 4. And then secondly, we're going to see the answers to prayer in verses 5 and 8. So firstly, prayer and, and planning. It's, it's important for us to, to track a few things as we come into chapter 2 here. And we see this recording of months. Right In chapter 1, he talked about uh, the month of Chislev. And now we're in the month of Nisan. Why is this important? Why is this recorded here? Well, if you do the calculation and you know the Jewish calendar between chapter 1, verse 1 and chapter 2, verse 1, what it indicates is that before anything starts to happen for Nehemiah and the people of Israel, there are four months that pass. Nehemiah has spent four months praying and planning since he heard word of the troubles of the returned exiles. Nehemiah has been praying constantly throughout that period. Now, praying is important, but prayer can sometimes be something that we piously use to excuse doing nothing, right? How many times have you perhaps had people say to you, I'll pray for you, and know that they probably won't? I hope that that doesn't happen in our churches, but I know that it's happened, and I know that I have let people down, that I've said, I will pray for them. One of the things that has been emphasized in our church, particularly in Covenant Toronto, that was founded by my father, and one of the things that he taught us throughout as we were being discipled in the word under his ministry is that prayer must be connected with action. In other words, if you pray about a situation, it is entirely appropriate and to be expected that you will do whatever God has given into your power to address that situation. So it's important that we see that prayer isn't just an excuse to do nothing. In fact, and it's not just an excuse to bring it to the Lord. It's also something where we seek to marshal all of our resources to indeed help address the situation, to be ready to be used as instruments of God in the situation. As we'll see when the king questions Nehemiah in verses 5 to 8, Nehemiah, as we come to chapter 2 in these four months of prayer, has also given a lot of planning and a lot of thought to what things is what he's going to ask King Artaxerxes or how he's going to approach this. And it's important for us to see that there is a plan here. One of the, the, the problems, I think, and one of the struggles that many of us have with respect to prayer is that we're often more planners than prayers. We get excited about plans. We drop charts and graphs, and we run through how the conversation would go in our heads, and we rehearse it a few hundred times, and then we bring it. We can be great planners, 
especially when we want something. I remember one of my daughters, when she was much younger, came to me about something that she would really want to have. And because she really wanted it and she knew that I was somewhat reluctant, she had already anticipated my questions and objections. And even though she was a small girl at the time, she knew that I wasn't very excited about Barbie. She knew that I, wasn't, I didn't really like Barbie because of a number of different reasons. So when she approached me about buying a Barbie uh, with her birthday money, she was very careful and she had planned out that, that this was not the Barbie doll that she, the Barbie doll she wanted wasn't Barbie, it was one of her friends. It wasn't Barbie. And she already had, had, had questions and answers to my questions all prepared and planned out. It was a very well-crafted pitch. But here's the thing, not all the best planning will get someone to say yes. Unlike a child coming to ask something from her parents, some people seem almost impossible to approach. But the thing that we have to remember is that with God, the impossible is made possible. How often we forget this. We try to answer our own prayers. Now, don't mistake me. It is important that we need to be prepared to act, but we are not God and we need his help. We need to be prepared to act, but we also need to recognize that he is the one that answers prayers. We need to not seek to go about in a manipulative way to get the best what we can. Because we need to remember that when we bring it to God in prayer, he is capable. He is able to do this. Far often our concept of, far too often our concept of God is too small. But our God is great. Our God is capable of great things. And we see that very clearly in this narrative with Nehemiah. We need to sort of orient ourselves a little bit to what is going on here. We need to get a full appreciation of what Nehemiah is asking for. Nehemiah is a slave. He has been brought into captivity for Persia. He is a cupbearer of the king. So he is an elevated slave, but he's still a servant. He's still a captive. He doesn't have the rights and the privileges of a citizen of Persia. He just has the privilege of access. So while he has privilege, he doesn't have freedom. It's hard for us to sort of relate to this a little bit because we live in free societies, but I think one of the ways that we can sort of imagine this is if we think of ourselves as maybe a butler or a maid at the, the prime minister's residence, you know, whether it's 24 Sussex Drive in Canada, in Ottawa, Canada, or government house in Barbados. And if you're a butler or a maid, you'll have tremendous security clearance, right? You'll have been checked out, you're not a threat, they've talked to all of your background, and you have access. You are in the space in which the prime ministers uh, reside. And you may get a lot of time and space in the same room as the prime minister, or in Nehemiah's case, the king. You have a lot of access, especially at parties and, and mealtimes. 
But in Nehemiah's case, or if you are employed, there's still a great distinction between you as the servant, or in Nehemiah's case, the slave, and the king of the largest empire of the world at the time. Could you imagine, for example, if a butler in Justin Trudeau's entourage, or uh, Mia Notley, uh entourage, came up and said, Mr. Prime Minister, Mrs. Prime Minister, I don't like your foreign policy. Let's just pick somewhere, right? I don't like your foreign policy uh, on the situation with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. In fact, I disagree with Operation Impact. And here's the thing. I would like you to go on the major networks, CNN, CBC, CTV, and, and tell them that you're essentially wrong and that you're sending me, your butler, over there to, to take command of the forces in Mosul. I'm going to leave my job, by the way, and uh, become ruler of the city of Mosul uh, for the next 12 years with full support from the Canadian military. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to establish a religious state that's of a different religion than your religion in that state. Now, that sounds ridiculous to us, but that's effectively what Nehemiah is asking for in this. You talk about a big ask. That's way bigger than asking someone who bought a computer to buy a car. He's asking the king to give away his kingdom. The question is, whose kingdom is it? Now, to do that takes something much more than just guts, right? It takes prayer. It takes someone who has a trust and a belief in God. Because Nehemiah, again, remember, he's a slave. And he can be gone at the snap of the king's fingers. He can be, his life can be taken away for any impertinence. In other words, his request that he brings here in chapter 2 is essentially suicidal. It's literally suicidal without the prayer context. He's asking to be killed. It's audacious. It's bold. But Nehemiah is prepared. He has prayer and a plan. That's what prayer enables us to do. We pray about how we might approach the person and pray for what we ought to say, and then we plan it out. Instead of worrying and obsessing about it, we pour out our hearts and our plans to God. And this is a really important and practical thing. For us to do. We see that Nehemiah does this in chapter 2 and, uh, and he's prepared for this encounter in, in chapter 1 and he's prepared for this encounter with the king at a party in chapter 2. And one of the most important things that we can take away from this is the need for us to marry our planning and our prayers together. And I speak especially to those in leadership or those aspiring to leadership. Pastor John and my weekly meetings are bracketed by prayer. We pray before we consider things and we pray after them. Sometimes we pray in the middle if there's a particularly difficult situation that we just need wisdom and help for. I often ask the deacons to pray with us for difficult and challenging situations that we face as a leadership or meetings that we have upcoming when we gather to plan the budget and when we 
discuss the whole situation with Barbados, that was surrounded by prayer. And if you know some of the history around the founding of CRBC Barbados, you can't deny that God answers prayer, that a, that a little church here in Canada that still rents its own place, and it's not huge, was used by God to help establish another church and help another church get established in Barbados. That was not through the genius of men. That was not through uh, uh, mere men. That was through God answering prayer. We saw that time and time again. Barriers continued to be erased and doors continued to be opened. It wasn't luck or it wasn't good chance. It was providence. It was God who did that. God who made planting a church 4,000 kilometers away entirely possible. Now, Nehemiah's opportunity to engage his plan and to begin comes at an unguarded or unexpected moment. As we look here in these first few verses, we see that in this month of Nisan, he's at a party with King Artaxerxes and his wife, Queen Damaspasia. Uh, sorry, Damaspia is also there. And what gives him away at the party is a sad face. He says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. So what gives away um, Nehemiah is that he is sad. He's mulling over all of the the, the, the concerns about his people, about, his, about his, his, his countrymen, his brothers, his kinsmen, and the trouble that they're facing back in Jerusalem. And the crime is, and it doesn't seem like that to us, but it is a crime in the presence of the Persian king to show sadness. That's a no-no, not only before the king, but also before the king and queen. Now, the fact that his queen is there suggests that it's a, an informal party, which means that the, the, the king would have had more opportunity to notice what's going on with Nehemiah. It also means that it was a, perhaps a little bit more potential for problems at this party, as there were two royal figures that had to be attended to. But as the feast goes forward, the king observes the downcast face of Nehemiah in verse 2. Now, again... We got to understand that this in itself would have been uh, an unforgivable thing amongst, according to Persian rules. Nehemiah says in verse one that he'd been careful to mask his true feelings before. And the reason was because the Persians believed that it was impossible not to be happy in the king's presence. Now that's ridiculous, but that was the rule, right? You are so wonderful to be in the presence of of the earthly king of Persia. Now it's interesting, isn't it? That is sort of a, uh, an interesting connection to what it means to be in face-to-face -face fellowship with God. Because with God, in the relationship that we've talked about in heaven, he wipes all of our tears away and we will truly be ultimately happy. But in the presence of an earthly king, there is still sorrow. There are still things that tug at our hearts and that pull us apart. 
And Nehemiah, though he has the privilege of access to this earthly king, cannot help but have a sad face or a sad countenance at this time. Fascinating insight, by the way, into the Persian Empire and Persian etiquette is found in the book of Esther, who is the wife of Artaxerxes I. Um, it, it takes quite something. Mar Mordecai, her cousin in that book, wanted to inform her about the suffering of the Jews, but he dared not enter the palace because he was dressed in sackcloth, the, the symbol of mourning. He couldn't do that. Um, and so what did he do? In Esther chapter 4 and verse 2, it talks about how he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Right? You couldn't be sad and come into the presence of the king. It was unforgivable. But here we see something surprising. Artaxerxes shows that he's willing to overlook Nehemiah's breach of protocol. And he shows genuine interest. He says, why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick. He sees that there's no physical reason why Nehemiah should be this way. Now, Nehemiah may have deliberately let his feelings show to prompt this kind of exchange with the king. Verse 11 of chapter 1 suggests that he is preparing in his prayer to, to come before the king. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. But whatever the situation, when the moment comes, it's a critical one, a crucial one. If Nehemiah doesn't handle it well, he'll lose. There won't be another opportunity. In fact, he'll most likely be dead. He's on the edge of disaster. And we can see his stress here <clears throat> in verse Two, he says, then I was very much afraid. He knew what a breach of protocol it was to be sad in the presence of the king. Certainly the lives of the exiles were on the line, but also who knows what the king would do to him when he told him what was going on. So what does he do in this moment of stress? What would you do if you were facing a similar situation? Well, if you hadn't been bringing this very thing up to God in prayer, you might have come up with perhaps a lie or a diversion. Oh, I'm not, I'm not sad. Sorry. It's just the lighting in here. You know, I'm really just happy, right? And you'd paint that happy smile on your face or you divert him and say, oh, have you tried this, this, I don't know, the, the, what do you call it? I don't know wine, but you know, fine wine, try and distract him with some, some good vintage. But that's not how Nehemiah handles it. Nehemiah had been praying day and night to God about the situation. He had fasted and pleaded with God for his people. Whether this was planned or unplanned, he goes for it. He trusts himself into God's good hand. And in verse 3, he addresses him directly. He tells the truth in a respectful, tactful, but very direct way. He said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. It's interesting, he does it tactfully. He affirms uh, his loyalty to the king. He says, let the king live forever. But he also explains why he's upset. He doesn't ask for anything 
He just answers the question. But we wonder, what's going to happen when he pours out his concerns to the king? Well, secondly, we see his prayers and his planning now come to fruition. Now we see answers to prayer. The king answers him by asking, what is it that you are requesting? Now it's interesting. What's going on here? The king has, Nehemiah hasn't told the king that he wants anything at all. But the king's response is to be graciously and kindly disposed towards his cupbearer, his slave. The king asks him if he has a request. And it's as simple as that. Sometimes we don't see how God works. But Nehemiah must have understood that this is how God's work. In fact, we see him shooting up an arrow prayer in verse 4. He says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is an important little insert here. It's important for us to notice. Note, Nehemiah obviously could not have just immediately dropped to his knees and, and done a little five, ten minute prayer before God. This prayer that he offers to God could only have been a few seconds, probably with his eyes open, perhaps not. But this was one of those arrow prayers. You need to come before God. This is not the prayer of Moses, you know, taking chapters to, to read. This is not Daniel's prayers or Paul's. We don't even know what the prayer was. We can only guess that it lasted a few seconds. But what we see here is a prayerful mindset that is there with uh, Nehemiah. This is what it means to submit to God in prayer. In Philippians 4.4, we're encouraged to not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request before God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here we see a model for us. We see, we've been asked an important question. We know it's important. And the way that we recognize its importance is that we bring it before God. And this happens all the time. This happens to us all the time. Maybe it's when you're at work and your boss asks you a question that you don't want to look silly or exposed. So you pray before you answer. Or... Maybe you're talking to a friend or a neighbor or a relative and an opportunity sort of presents itself to speak about the gospel. In those times, we have an opportunity to bring them before God. Just in that, in that few seconds to, to pray as Nehemiah did. Oftentimes when I have the opportunity to talk to people, I'm actually praying in little bits as we're having the conversation, asking Spirit, open his eyes. Help him to see the, the need for Jesus. Show us Jesus. Show, us, show him Jesus. Show him the grace of God. Right? This is what Nehemiah is doing here. So Nehemiah here prays quickly, and then he lays out his plan, which he has planned and prayed about for the last four months. And we can see the preparation that's gone into it. He starts right at it. He answers him directly. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, 
to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. <laughs> no bones about it. He goes right for the jugular. He says exactly what he needs. Again, we see that this is a situation that requires faith, right? Nehemiah was able to ask these things because he had been relationally relating them to God and entrusting them to God and praying to God and expecting that God would provide the opportunity for him to lay out his case. So when the, the opportunity had come, he prayed and he planned, he was ready. He was prepared and he rolled out his plans. Again, we see what happens. The king replies in verse 6. He says, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when will you return? <laughs> he doesn't say, Guards, take him and kill him. No. He responds, positively. And here we see the power of God moving the heart of the king. You see, one of the reasons why we don't pray is because we lack faith that God has the sovereignty and the power to effect change. And this is a reminder that he does. We can't forget the sovereignty of God over all of humanity. How quickly we forget that we believe it. We're we say that we're reformed, we're a Calvinistic church, but does it show in the way that we pray? Does it show in the expectation that we have that God will answer prayers according to see his will be done and his kingdom built? And this is very literally what Nehemiah has in mind, that his kingdom would be rebuilt. We need to ask ourselves, do we actually believe what the scripture says? Proverbs 21, verse 1 says that king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In other words, the king is entirely in the control of God. It's amazing, but it's true. Because it, God cannot be God if he is not utterly and completely sovereign. So do we, we don't pray as impotent people. We are impotent in our own strength, but if we are God's sons and daughters, we are coming before our Father and we're asking him to act, to glorify himself. But again, consider the, the greatness of this ask. He's basically asking King Artaxerxes to reverse his foreign policy and to give this butler the powers to rebuild a former enemy city that they had gone and conquered and to pursue a different religion. <laughs> That's an incredible ask. It, it's crazy. It, it, it seems suicidal. But Nehemiah does so, sure with fear, but also with confidence. But Nehemiah is not just about uh, the, the, the ask, he's got a plan. He sought wisdom about the details too. He knows that he needs passage through the king's lands. He needs the king to write him letters. He also knows that he has to obtain the permits for rebuilding to get the supplies, the timber and the stone. He needs to go to the Persian equivalent of Home Depot and get all the materials to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
And so this is what he asks. He says, so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Oh yeah, I want a house like yours, by the way, you know, the governor's mansion. Yeah, we'll just put that over there. We'll just include that in there. Right. <laughs> Are you kidding this? The ask is incredible. What bravery, what audacity. It'd be really easy for Nehemiah to go on and on about how he has, he's the one, uh, you know, I had the guts to, uh, to, to, to ask and, you know, it's, it's leadership like mine that, that we need in Israel to rebuild and, and rebuild our empire and everything else. But when he writes the story, he knows who's really at work. Look at verse 8. He says, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. He attributes his success not to his ingenuity or his bravery or his audacity. He attributes it to the God who gave him those gifts and the God who opened and held the king of Persia's heart in his hands. It was good and it was the hand of God. Sometimes the answer is not good or sweet, but it works for our good. And still, we need to remind ourselves that an answer from God is an answer from God and from Jesus. And we need to see that everything that we have comes from our God who loves us and cares for us. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. We need to be able, like Nehemiah, to live our lives not glorying in ourselves, but glorying in the God who provides for all of our needs. You see, Nehemiah was able to act with confidence and boldness because he was confident of his relationship with God in prayer. Maybe you are still walking around in the darkness of uncertainty. What Nehemiah offers for you is a vision of what it means to live as a believer following and trusting the Lord, even in dark times, and knowing and expecting that he will respond to your prayers to accomplish whatever his purposes are, so we can live a life in submission to him. Now, what's neat about this is that Nehemiah's horizon has, and his prayer, is based on a limited horizon. We now have so much more because we recognize that this was part of God's plan to preserve Israel, to preserve the line of David so that they would return after exile, not get absorbed into the Persian system and, and intermarry and become an undistinct country. No, he brings them back and preserves the line of Jesus Christ in the line of the exiles. And as you look in the beginning of Matthew and, and in Luke, where we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ, his name includes exiles that returned back and maintained that line so that a savior could come, Jesus Christ. And you see, Nehemiah was praying according to the plan and purpose of God. God had promised that he would bring a savior through Israel, 
So Nehemiah knew that if Israel did not exist, then there could be no savior. And so he had supreme confidence in coming before God in prayer. And what's interesting, as we've been looking on Wednesday nights, we see that Jesus himself came and prioritized prayer. In fact, if you need a reason to pray, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, he himself dedicated himself to prayer to God. He poured out his heart. Now, if Jesus needs prayer, obviously, we can't survive without it either. Many people don't think that they need prayer. They need God. They see religion as a crutch. They don't need to pray to anyone. They might think that it's some sort of sign of weakness. And it may indeed look that way to the world. Frankly, oftentimes Christians look that way to the world. We look weak. So be it. In fact, we are weak. Let's be honest. We are weak. We can't save ourselves. Our sin is too great. We need a savior to intervene. Think of how Paul addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, we need to understand that prayer is the greatest weapon and engine for change in our world. Nehemiah did not lead the exiles in a rebellion, an armed rebellion against the Persian Empire. No, he did something much greater. He peacefully and wonderfully prayed to God, and God looted the Persians of their riches and sent back the exiles with everything that they needed to rebuild their city. We need to understand that prayer has more power than the greatest weapon that we know to man, the greatest nuclear blast. There is more power in prayer because it connects us to the God who made the universe simply by speaking it into being. So friends, why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we go to our God? Sometimes we feel foolish or we're weak. But God doesn't want us to come in our sophistication. He wants to come in our desperation. Nehemiah came to him in weeping and mourning. Mourning over his people, concern for their welfare, weeping over their sin. That's how God wants us. Jesus teaches us to be like children coming and asking God for things persistently and consistently. I was sharing with our church on Wednesday night about my youngest son and how he keeps asking for Lego. His birthday's in, in July, and he's been asking for months over and over in the same way. And the question is, why does he do that? 
if he keeps asking? Well, he does it. He comes to me because he believes that I have the power and the disposition to fulfill all of his Lego fantasies. He knows that I love him. And if I withhold the Lego from him, there must be a reason. I might just be waiting for a better time to give it to him. But it doesn't mean that I won't provide it to him at a later date. He knows that I love him, so he keeps asking and asking and reminding me of his birthday on July 4th. But that kind of attitude, that childlike approach to the Father, that, that picture is something that Jesus uses in Matthew 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And listen to this. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask you? Do you follow Jesus' reasoning here? I'm a fallen, sinful human being. I'm a father and I'm privileged to be a father. And I'm a loving father who is, hopefully he's not listening, quietly searching Amazon for deals on Lego for his birthday. But if I have the desire to feed his joy and his creativity, then the rationale Jesus has here is, isn't God who is greater, far greater than than Little old me, isn't he more disposed to answer, to hear, and to answer our prayers and to delight? Doesn't he have greater plans and power and reserves? How much more should we not come to him with the desires that we have? He is able to create and destroy. He is able to redeem and to save. Think of what John says in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he knows that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that will be asked of him according to his will. Lego might not fit that bill, but the salvation of your children Will that fit God's bill? Is that not his will? He doesn't suffer any to perish. Why aren't we constantly pleading before God? On this Father's Day, fathers, I encourage you, do the greatest thing that you can do for your children. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray and plan. Pray and speak to them of the love of the Father shown to us through the Son and through his works. Keep praying and don't give up. What about practical things? For the reopening and growth of our church. We have many challenges facing us as a church. Even before COVID-19 in Toronto, we had building issues. We were running out of space. And we've been eyeing that gym for a long time. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place to expand? Well, look at the situation. 
Our building capacity for the South Studio is nine people. Nine people. But the building capacity of the gym is at least 44 or greater. Hmm, maybe we have a case. Maybe we need to be bringing that before the Lord in prayer. Lord, maybe you are going to use the coronavirus to give us more of the church. You've done it before. Why not bring that to our God in prayer? Keep praying. Don't give up. What about work or a marriage partner? Some of you are looking for both. Some of you are looking for one. Those are both creation ordinances. They are good things. God will provide us what we need. Keep praying and planning. What about your sick relatives or sick members in the church? God is gracious and kind. Keep praying. Keep planning. Keep presuming on his chesed, on his steadfast love and grace. God is gracious to his people. He hears our prayers. And he will always answer them. Yes, no, or not yet. Those are the three answers God always gives to prayer. Our prayers are not unanswered. He either grants what we request, he says no, or not yet. We can't always tell the difference between no and not yet. So we persist like the persistent widow. Like my son coming for Lego. If it's a good thing, we want it. And we don't see why our God will not provide it. He hears our prayers. We're dependent upon him. We don't like prayer in part because it reminds us that we are creatures and that we are utterly and completely dependent upon our creator. Nehemiah prayed for four months before God answered his prayer wonderfully. And it wasn't without challenges to come. If you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you see that he had to fight against people and there were all kinds of things and he had to continually bring it before prayer. It was not just this one time, it was something that he continued to pray for. But for four months, he prayed about this, this opportunity, this desire that he had to be used as an instrument to bring about the return of Israel to their city in Jerusalem. For you, it might be longer or shorter. George Mueller prayed all his life for two of his friends to be saved. One was saved the year before he died, and one was saved the year after. He's prayed for them for decades. He continued to pray for them every day. Prayer like that takes faith. It's hard because we're so weak and distracted. But as we've been saying on Wednesday night, Jesus encourages us. He doesn't say, come to me, all you who can concentrate and formulate awesome prayers, quoting multiple verses of hymns with flowery language. No. He says, he calls his children to come. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you this morning, we looked at the closing words of the Bible. And there was a prayer, come Lord Jesus. And tonight, we end this glorious Lord's Day by encouraging you to come before the Lord Jesus and to commune before him in prayer as you anticipate his return.
That's your privilege as a believer, if you're a believer this evening, to come to Jesus, to ask him, to petition him, to pour out the burdens of your heart, to pray to him, and know the grace of his love, his attention, and his favor, to trust him. But what if you're an unbeliever this evening? Well, if you're an unbeliever this evening, you still need and are welcome to come to God in prayer. The eternal Father in heaven will not give you a stone if you ask for the bread of life. He will not give you a serpent if you ask for a fish. That's what Jesus said. So the instruction for the unbeliever is the same as the believer. Come to Jesus. Don't wait. Come to him now. Accept the invitation. The spirit and the bride, that is the church, say, come. Come to Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you because you are the only one who can truly answer prayer. We come to you because you are real, because you are the great God who is Lord and Father over all. And so, Lord, we pray, would you work sovereignly in us? Would you increase our faith in you? Would you cause us, Lord, to see the privilege of access, the privilege of refuge that we have in being able to pour out our hearts before you, to know that you hear and that you answer in your matchless wisdom and grace. So Lord, we pray, help us to live our lives in submission to you. Help us, Lord, to cry out to you, whether it's with long and loud prayers or with quick and short arrow prayers. Help us to live in your presence and in relationship to you. Help us not to forfeit the privileges that you give to us as children of you. And Lord, if there are those tonight who do not know you and who do not know this privilege of access, we pray that even now, Lord, you would cause them to drop to their knees and to cry out and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Show me your grace. And Lord, we ask, would you answer those prayers? Would you bring salvation to hearts tonight? We pray these things expecting that your name will be glorified. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.